0: Good morning. Good morning. Ah, there we go. Thought we were about to have a problem. No problem. All right. My name's Ernie. I'm the pastor here. Thank you. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. We're glad to have you. Uh, you know, a long time ago I was in college. It doesn't feel like a long time because to me it doesn't anyways. It feels very recent, but then my wife lets me know that was like the last time I seriously worked out. She's like, you can't You can't talk about your physical attributes that were half a life ago. And I'm like, that's true. But when I was in college, I got to spend, I got lucky enough to go, two of my friends to go backpacking around Europe for eight weeks, all right? That sounds like really luxurious. I promise you, you would not want to do Europe the way we did it, all right? We did it as cheaply as possible because we had no money and had to finance the whole thing. Like, I was selling stuff ticket to, to go, like, I even contemplated selling my car. You know, I was like, I can walk; we can walk everywhere. But uh, so we got there, and how we decided to do this so cheaply is that we decided that we were gonna camp every chance we had. And if we couldn't camp, then we would sleep in train stations. And if we can't sleep in train stations, like then we're gonna then we'll get a hostel, or every now and then we'll treat ourselves with a hostel. All right, that was the way that we did it too. I've woken up next to so many homeless people cuddling with me in a train station. And been like, whatever, I'm too tired. And I would never encourage anybody to do this because it was a different time back then. And I was also stupid to do it then that way too. But the point I was all I'm telling you is it was a treat to stay in a hostel for us. And it was a big deal whenever we were going to spend money on anything because, I mean, even meals. Like for lunch, we'd just buy like salami and this bread for like four bucks. And that would be our meal, a dollar a day that we'd just eat that because – we're just walking around. We're just going to eat it. We're not going to spend a bunch of money on food. Every now and then I get really hangry and go to McDonald's and crush a Royale with cheese. You know, you ever seen those? And you're up, that's what they're called, Royale with cheese. And uh, we found out something very quickly on our first day together. One is that we all felt like we should have been the person in control. And two, we felt like we were totally right in the direction that we wanted to go to no matter what the facts said. In fact, there was one point where my friend Critter's on one side of the street, my other friend Jason's the other, and we're all pointing in different directions, going, it's this way, and we're yelling at each other, and we quickly got to the conclusion that this isn't going to work because, like, can we live through this? Like, I might kill you in two weeks if I have to keep doing this every place we go. And so we decided to pool our our resources. We went to an Internet cafe because there's no iPhone back then. There's no GPS, and you're like, what's an Internet cafe? It's exactly what it is, a bunch of computers with the Internet in a single room where they give you some coffee. Alright, and so we go there and we're printing up all the maps and stuff, and we decide, let's just break it up between whatever city, like you'll have a city, you'll have a city, like, and you'll lead that area, and we'll all have to follow you. And we're gonna follow you, and we're gonna judge you the entire time, by the way, because we are viciously immature at this moment in life. And so we I picked Rome because I was really excited about Rome. Like, I'm gonna lead Rome, I'm gonna get it right, critter's gonna mess it up. Jason, no way he's gonna get it right. Like, I'm taking Rome. So I picked Rome. And so I did all the research, got all the Google Maps stuff, and I thought I hit a home run. Like I was like, hey, we're gonna go to this place called the Yellow Hotel. It is right in the center of the city. It's amazing, like, everything's there. In fact, it's even within walking distance of the train, so we don't even have to, like, pay for a cab to get anywhere. Like, we just walk right up to it. And so as we're walking up to it, I'm, like, full of confidence. And like, hey, are you sure we're heading the right way? Like, because we're doing. like, are you sure this is the right way? And they're like, trying to shake us. Like, give me the map. I'm like, no, get out of here. I got it. And so we show up to this hostel, and it is awesome. Like, it is incredible. It's got this cool vibe. There's, like, pretty Italian chicks talking to us in Italian. Like, this is great. Like, we're 20 years old. Like, this is awesome. Like, this is fantastic. Like, the music's going on. I was like, we have our own, like, I've already booked to have our own room. And I'm looking at this place and be like, we could just walk straight to the Coliseum right there. It's going to be amazing. So I'm feeling really good about myself. And I grab my passports and I hand them to the, the lady that's checking us in. And I see her taking a bit longer on the computer than typically happens. And then she starts speaking in Italian to the other girl. And then she looks at us, she goes, hey, we can't find your reservation here and we're all booked up. And I was like, no, that can't be. I booked the Yellow Hotel. And she goes, well, we're the Yellow Hostel. And she points at the sign above her head and my heart drops. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't, okay, it's probably in the same area, no, no big deal. And she prints out a map for us, she goes, here it is. And it is like an hour by train to where we need to be. It's like in 30 minutes by cab. In fact, we decided to take the train because we're cheap. And my friends are dunking on me the entire time, just laughing at me. We had to jump over a fence. And when we show up at the yellow hotel, I'm like, it's still going to be great. It's going to be great. It was not great. All right. It was awful. And I was just sitting there confused, like, how, how can this be like? I had this plan. I had this picture about where I was going to be. I had this destination that I was aiming at, but my plan did not bring me to where I wanted to go. Maybe you've experienced something like that in your life, like you've had a job or a dating relationship, or there's been a vacation that you had this destination, this plan, this vision about what was going to happen, but you had the wrong plan that led you to a place that you never wanted to be. Has that ever happened to you, or is that just me over and over and over again? All right, okay, nervous laughs, I'm taking those as yeses. Here's my fear, is that many of us in this room have the right goal about the most important thing in your life, but have the wrong plan. That many of us have the right goal that we want to be in a relationship with God, that we want to know God, but we don't have the right plan in order for that to happen. We have this destination that's right, but the wrong reservation. See, many of us, I think, if you're in this room, for some reason, you want to be in right relationship with God. But I think some of us, in trying to be in right relationship with God, in trying to be in relationship with God, we begin to follow this logic that makes sense to us that if I do the right things, then I'll be in the right place. That if I'm the right person, I will be in right with God. That as long as my goods outweigh my bads, I'm going to be in right relationship with God. And so you begin to play this game called the morality game, the acceptance-based theology game, that you begin to do the math equation in your mind, like one good thing is a plus. So I got one good thing, but I got a negative thing. Like, okay, I spoke nice to the neighbor. That's plus one good thing. Okay, uh, I lied to my friend. That's negative one. And if I could just die with it being plus one or plus 50 or plus 70 or whatever that number is that you play in your mind, that you will be in right relationship with God at the end of all things. That when your life ends and you're standing before God, that you're going to point to what you did. And some of you have become so good at that game that you don't even realize you're playing it. Some of you don't even realize you're playing it. Some of you, as followers of Christ, you have trusted Jesus for salvation. But your acceptance is fully based upon your performance. So when you do good, you want to be around him. When you don't, you run from him. Because you feel like he's pleased with you, he's not pleased with you. Some of you think you're good at that game. That you have some form of confidence in standing before God. But really, in the quietness of your heart, as much as your heart will even lie to yourself as you compare yourselves to other people, you know that you don't have what it takes. And you live in this frustrating cycle where day after day, I need to do better tomorrow. And there is no peace. And there is no life. And there is no joy. See, if that's you this morning, you're in the exact right place. Because we're going to look at a story in John chapter 3 about a man who is more moral than anyone else in this room. That had his stuff together more than anyone else could. His, his righteousness to him, like, man, he understood how to play the game way better than any of you did. And Jesus will love him enough to tell him that his plan is not going to bring him to the destination he desires to land on. And I think if we look at this, we will understand that relationship with God does not come about by your performance. But it's about a wholesale transformation in your life that God accomplishes within you. So let's pray and then we'll get into the word of God. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to the places that we're playing games with you. Open our eyes to the places that we're looking to bring righteousness through our own actions and not pointing to your righteousness. God, For uh, there's so many people in this room, Lord, that I think they would answer the question, why would God let you into heaven? They would say, man, because I do good things or I've done enough good things. Lord, I pray that you would so clearly speak that they are not good and they are in need of a good savior and that you are that person and that you've come to bring life. Lord, for the Christian who has accepted your grace and mercy on the work of the cross, but still lives underneath the yoke of legalism that thinks that all he needs to do to be accepted or be loved or encouraged by God is to continue to be a good Christian, that that would be tore down and he would fall fully on his face in acceptance of your mercy and grace. We don't want to live in a fake reality. We want to real, live in real reality with you. And so, Lord, can we lay aside the games and can we walk intimately with you? Amen. Okay, starting in verse 1, it says this, and we're going to have to go pretty quickly. We've got a lot of verses to cover this morning. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers him, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, doesn't that response to Jesus sound like a little bit out of like left field? Like Jesus, like, hey, uh, okay, let me just say like Nicodemus is like, I just always start with introductions. And Jesus just like cuts straight to the truth. See what you have to hear what what Jesus wants to say to Nicodemus at Nick at night because he shows up at night in this little chat, this little fireside chat he has with him. And what he wants to say to us this morning is that being religious is not enough. And when I talk about religious, I'm talking about being performance-based acceptance of God, that I am accepted by the level of what I am able to do with or for God. And here, Nick, he is a religious guy. He is a Pharisee, okay? In fact, he says, like, he is the lead teacher of all of Israel. Like, everyone's looking to him, and if you are like, Ernie, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a particular religious sect within Judaism. And these people would walk around, kind of give you a picture of what they were. They would wear these long robes and they had these boxes on their head. And what was in that boxes was the Ten Commandments, because the Word of God said, Head, keep this in your mind always. So they just stuck it to their head. They were very literal in that way. They were professional rule keepers. In fact, they would look at the Word of God and see all the rules. If you ever read through Leviticus and all this stuff, they were like, these rules are even too general. And so they wrote two more books about what does it look like to follow the rules. They would say stuff like this, like, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? So, so they would write, okay, if an animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath and you, could, you couldn't help it because that would be considered working on the Sabbath. Or you can only walk so many steps on the Sabbath because once you walk past X amount of steps, then we're calling that work. And you're meant to rest on the Sabbath. And they just made all of these rules and they try to keep these rules and they'd keep everybody In line with those rules. And so here this this rule-keeping morale, like moral police guy shows up to Jesus and Jesus has something to say to him. He says, hey, I understand why you came at night. See, John writes about night and day. It's a theme within his narrative you're going to see that represents something. It's letting us know that Nicodemus, his, his coming is not showing his full hand. That's why in verse 19, Jesus would say, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and says, You come to me in dark, because you don't want me to expose you for the religious hack that you are. You don't come to me with all the other Pharisees because you don't want to be embarrassed if you fail in this intellectual exchange you want to do. See, religion is a problem when it's about religion, when it's about keeping the rules, because religion then becomes all about pretense. And pretense is faking it. It's about lying about where, where you really are. Pretense, guys, is rebellion against reality. And since Jesus loves reality, he has no patience for pretense. And us as Christians, we love seeing other, actually just people, all right, it's just humanity. We love seeing other people as being full of pretense and being fake, but we have a hard time admitting the reality of that that rests within us. Let me just ask you a couple of questions. How many of you have a spouse and you argued on the way here to church and all of a sudden you get to church like, all right, game face on? Ha, 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 we're all good, even though in the car you're yelling at one another. Or you, maybe you did it on the way to dinner or a party or whatever. How many of you guys have roommates that you're just like, everything's fine? It's fine. No, it's good. We're not going to talk about it. How many times have you been like, oh, we've been praying for that, but you didn't pray for it once. You forgot all about it. But you know that the right answer as a Christian is to say that we prayed for that our connection group, yeah, I read my Bible three times this past week, when actually you read it once, maybe, but it's a better, more palatable answer. We love to see the pretense in others. We love to look at Nicodemus and say, he's different than us, but he's very much like us. See, Nicodemus here, he starts out full of pretense. He looks at him, he's like, rabbi, he says, we would which means he's representing the Pharisees. He says, "We know that your teacher comes from God." I just think that's how religious people talk. For no one can do these things unless you, unless unless you do, unless God is with him. Do you see the the pretense, the platitudes? I think Nicodemus is offering a handshake to Jesus before he's got to show this Jew from Nazareth what a real teacher looks like. And it's just this so all of a sudden, like Oscar in the office, he says this nice thing, and all of a sudden he can slam you. You guys don't watch the office. But because of what we just read in chapter two, do you remember the last verse? It says, "Because Jesus knows the heart of man, He doesn't entrust him, because he knows the heart of Nicodemus, he responds in the way that he did. He's not being rude. And guess what? I don't think Nicodemus is offended. He wasn't offended. I think he was found out that God was speaking the truth to him and Nick knew it. It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, you hurt my feelings. How could you say this to me? Let me let you know something, guys. If you want to be spiritually mature, you're going to need to lay down your capacity to be offended and take up a desire to be convicted. Because so many times what I see in the church is that I see brothers and sisters that see their friends doing things they should not be doing. That are not leading to their best life. That are not leading to God's best for them. And then they lovingly confront them. And we're like, oh, how could you say that? How, you're judging me. I feel judged by what you said. Like, I would never do that. I could never. Come on, guys. I would do it. All of the things that you are vulnerable to, I am vulnerable to. Can we just stop acting like we got it all together? Can we just lay the pretense down? And approach Jesus in the right way. See, pretense is rebellion against reality. And when you live in the land of pretense, you never get to talk about the things that matter. Because once you talk about those things, we might be offended. We might mess it. Oh, my gosh, this may not work out for me. And I love how Jesus just cuts right to the chase. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He just looks at this religious guy and says, hey, your works are not good enough. Some of you need to hear that. Your performance is not good enough. You're never going to please God by playing that game of religious, like, one good thing plus one one negative thing. I just got to get enough good things. He says, Nick, you're thinking about this the wrong way. It's not about self-improvement. It's about transformation. Look how Nick responds in verse 4. He says, how... Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Guys, write this down. It's about transformation, not self improvement. See, in this part, Nick is freaking out. He's like, What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, what are you you're saying? I gotta climb back into my mom. Like, that sounds crazy. Why is he thinking about this way? Because when you're religious, you only think in terms of things that are familiar, you only think about things. Uh, that fit within your construct of world. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's all about morality. And everything Jesus is saying and about to say is flying in the face of what he believes. God is looking at him and saying, your good works aren't enough because morality doesn't equal salvation. Morality doesn't equal salvation. Church, we have to come to realize this, that there are gonna be a lot of virgins in hell. There's going to be a lot of good people that our world will celebrate as a moral, awesome person that is in hell. And there's going to be a lot of people that the whole world thinks is a bad person in heaven. Because it's not about your morality, it's about transformation that happens in your life. And that is good news for us because none of us meet the bar that God is calling us to meet, which is perfection. Every single one of us miss it. So we should praise God that bad people go to heaven because we're bad people. The only way we don't think we're bad people is because we're measuring ourselves to others around us. Measure yourself to Christ because that's the bar and none of us meet it. It's about transformation. He's saying you have to change your thinking completely different. It's not about being good enough. He uses this word about being born again. And I love that word because it's awesome. I love that phrase. Because birth is about new life, not an upgraded life. He's not saying, hey, you got to do better in your behavior. Something new has to come from your life. My wife, when she gave birth to our three beautiful children, they weren't carbon copies of us that were upgraded versions. They are better than us, I'm sure of that, at least me. But they were new life. Paul would talk about in 2 Corinthians 5. He would say, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything's got to change. It has to be something completely new. So you have Nick here and he's like, he can't get out of his own way of thinking. And Jesus is like, no dude, you gotta be born of water and spirit. If you're not born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean to be born of water and spirit? Jesus is pointing to Ezekiel 36. And in that passage, it tells about the coming of the Messiah where God promised that he would pour out his spirit on people as water. And the result of the outpouring would be a new heart for those whom the spirit came upon. In other words, when he talks about water, he's talking about a new heart, a new spirit, and that we would be new and clean, that we would be cleansed cleansed from our sins by the water, and the spirit was pointing towards the Holy Spirit that when we believe, we become believers, not only does God clean our hearts and make us new, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. So to paraphrase what Jesus is saying is this, that unless God has changed our heart and given us the Holy Spirit, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. It has to be transformed and transformed completely. And transformation is all about what God has done and nothing to do with what you have done. You understand that? Like, it's all about the supernatural, not the natural. Like, it's natural, guys, to not want to go to hell. It's natural to, to, to want peace and joy and love. Those are natural things. Like, I've never met anyone that said, no, I wanna go to hell. I've never met anyone that says, I don't want peace, I want sleepless nights. Do every roommates like that? Maybe you do because they stay up all night. I don't want love. I want to be hated. Wanting love, wanting joy, wanting peace, wanting eternal life with God, those are natural things. What's not natural is being forgiven. That's an unnatural thing. See, while we want these things, We can't earn them. Romans 3.23 says every single one of us has sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God. But what Jesus is telling Nick and he's telling us is that he is the one that can deal with our problem. In fact, later in John 14.6, he's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That he is the one that creates a way. See, Jesus is the only one that promises not only the possibility, but the reality of forgiveness in your life. Jesus. And guys, listen to me. I really want you to hear me on this. Jesus did not come so that we would stay in the familiar and the natural. For Nicodemus, keeping the rules, walking the line, that was it. I don't know what your natural was. He didn't come here for you to stay in that. So Christians, ask yourself this question. What is supernatural about your life? What can you do that you couldn't do before you were a Christian that only God could bring about? I think so often we don't get it. See, one of the problems we have in the church, I think I really do believe this, is we don't know how to talk about God in a way that truly represents him. It doesn't capture a picture. It doesn't capture the imagination of others. And here Jesus is telling Nick, it isn't going to be good enough for you to just know all the rules. He looks at him and says, hey, in verse 7, do not marvel at these things. When he says you, he says it in the plural, like he's saying, hey, you as a representative of all the Pharisees and all that are listening, don't marvel at these things. That you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and it you hear its sound but you do not know where it is coming from or where it goes so is with everyone who is born of the spirit he says that this spirit is like the wind it's a picture of freedom that comes from knowing jesus not, not just from doing religious behavior or just like going to church because the church, guys, listen, so many churches, so many places, and I hope you don't do this at Mercy Hill Church, we practice an ethics of avoidance. We're like, just don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't watch PG-13 movies, all right, and you should be good. But Jesus, guys, what he's saying, he's saying, no, it's about life and that this life with him is like a wind. You don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. You can hear it, but it's this intoxicating liberation. Called Christianity. How do we live in that liberation that we've been given? How do we experience it? I think the Westminster Catechism says it really well. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So here's a question you need to ask yourself. Am I enjoying God? Not am I being a good Christian, am I enjoying God? Did yesterday when I ate dinner? Did I enjoy God in that moment? This morning when I got up. And rose from the was I enjoying God? Am I in relationship with God? Am I walking with him? Not that you enjoy your morning, but did you enjoy God in your morning? Not that you enjoyed yesterday, but you enjoyed God yesterday as you went about your day. Freedom is found in following Jesus and enjoying him. Everything else, guys, is just holding to the traditions of man. See, so guys, there's this wildly threatening Jesus looming on the fringe of your wildest imagination, and the problem is not that God is boring, but you don't know him. You've only seen a picture of a guy holding a sheep, and you think that's what this is about. You don't know the adventure he will call you on, the joys he wants to bring you. You can't imagine it until you taste it, and that's the amazing thing about following Jesus, that so many times words fail to explain it, it can only be experienced by walking in it let's get back to the passage verse 9 Nick's like how can these things be look how Jesus answers him are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things all of a sudden the guy that thought he was going to have Jesus on his heels is on his heels Jesus like ah how the turntables have turned Look at verse 11. He says, Truly, truly, I said to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness of what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, you, can, you how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Write this down. Transformation happens from trusting God, not ourself. Nick is trusting in his traditions that he's grown up with. He's like, his mind is like, how can this be? How can this be? Like, my whole life has been about this. My worth and community where I've set this direction in my life. And now you're telling me, Jesus, that I am walking completely in the wrong direction. And Jesus is calling Nick to trust three things in this moment. First, he's telling them to trust what he has said. Look at verse 11 again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that we, Jesus now uses the plural, but he's not representing Pharisees or the disciples. He's representing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, I speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You don't believe what I'm saying to you. Another author summarized it like this. I think it brings clarity to what Jesus is saying. He says, listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I'm speaking only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no heresy. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate it with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, What use is there in telling you things that you can't see, the things of God? See, what Jesus is saying in verse 11 is like, I'm not making up rumors. So he's calling Nicodemus and he's calling all of us. He's saying, hey, listen, are you taking me at my word? Christian, are you taking Jesus at his word? Are you procrastinating with questions and standing on the fence going, yeah, but this, yeah, but this in church history, yeah, but this in church life, yeah, but this in the history of what the church has done or what I've seen other people do. Are you just taking Jesus at his word this morning? The second thing we see is in verse 13, he says, trust. He's asking Nicodemus to trust who he is. He says, no one has descended into heaven except the one that descended from heaven, the son of man. You see what Jesus is saying right there? He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been praying for. I'm right here in the flesh. Friends, are you doubting who Jesus is? You're not going to find transformation and freedom without accepting him for who he is, not who you want him to be. He then says, trust what he has done. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about Moses and raising up the serpent. Now, we have an advantage as Christians because we get to look back to what that was foreshadowing. Nicodemus had to think about that passage in Exodus where the people of Israel were being sinful before God. And serpents went throughout the camp and started biting them and they started dying from poisonous snakes. And God tells Moses to raise up what would look like kind of a cross with a snake around it made, made of bronze. And he says anyone that looks this thing in the eyes will be healed from their, their wounds. And what Jesus says is what that was foreshadowing is one day the son of God would be lifted up before man. And anyone that would look to him for salvation would not just be healed from a poisonous bite of a snake, but the poisonous bite of sin. He's saying, Nicodemus, do you trust what I'm going to do? To us, he says, do you trust what I'm doing? Transformation, rebirth comes from trusting in what Jesus has done. And Jesus isn't done yet. Look at verses 16 to 19. This could be our last point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. that whomever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Circle that word in your Bible, eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whomever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. The goal of transformation in your life is not that you would just be a better person or an easier person for God to manage, but that you would have life. Christianity is not a religion. It is not a faith about avoidance of perishing. For some of you, the greatest motivation in your life is not to perish. It's not to go to hell. It's just to get a ticket to go to heaven. And Christ did accomplish that for you, but you are missing out on so much more. It's not just avoidance. It's about something much, much more. It's about life. Don't be content, Christian, with just not perishing. That's not what Jesus came for. Because when you're, when, when you're all about just not perishing, you become like that kid that plays freeze tag that like never leaves the base. You know, like he just stays there the whole game. And he's like, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. But he never gets to play the game. He never gets to get into the game of life. Eternal life is not about having a heartbeat forever. It's not about continuing to exist. It's about so much more. See, when he talks about eternal life right there, what he's meaning is this. Eternal life is a life that's ruled by eternity. It's not stuck down in the American dream. See, I love that we're a church that reaches college students, and I I miss my days of working directly with college students. In fact, I love taking them on mission trips. I love taking them on six, eight-week mission trips throughout the summer, it got me so excited. We went to Japan last week to kind of see what, what we're going to be able to send some of our students to. And I love leading it because many of them come like, "Man, I, this is just amazing! I'll never leave." I'm like, "You don't have to leave." Who said you got to finish college in four years? Your parents? But just imagine this: imagine this college students in the room that you would go to your first class in the fall, and there's this sixty eight year old dude sitting there with you, and you're like, "Dude, what is your story?" and he's like, man, I just went on this trip to China and God just put this burden on my heart for these people. And so I just never went home. I got married, I had kids and we just lived a life loving these people. And last year my wife died, so I just, hey, maybe it's time for me to come back to America to get my degree. You'd not just be amazed by that, but you don't know people like that. But God could call you to it. In fact, I know people that he has that are just like you and just like me. See, that's the adventure that God is calling us to here's the problem most of you think most of you think you want most of you what you think you want isn't going to satisfy you because it's predictable it's financial that's not a word it's regular it is and it is radically boring as I said I'm like that's not a word And it's a life lived just with your hand on the base. And Jesus said that he has given us eternal life, a life ruled by eternity. What does that look like? Let me tell you something. It's about deepening your relationship with God. A Christian walk is not the goal, it's the byproduct. The goal is knowing God. Christianity is the byproduct of right knowledge and knowing God. Don't get up in the morning and try to be a better person. Get up in the morning, Christian, and try to deepen your relationship with Jesus. But I think many of us don't do that. My fear is this you don't do that because you don't actually know God. That you're like a death man at the dance, you can't hear the music. You're just looking around at what everyone else is doing and just copying them, but you don't hear the music. My friends, the best day of my life is when I finally heard the music because that's where life began. That's when I stopped copying religious behavior around me and began deepening and following Jesus. The goal is life. Look at how many times Jesus says it in John 5, 39 through 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. 1 John 5.12, whomever has the Son has life. Whomever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The goal is life. So let me ask you this question. I'll leave you with this. Do you have a relationship with them? Do you have life? Are you just playing a religious game? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, you didn't just come to save us from something, but to something. That your picture for our life is greater than we could have ever imagined. That you don't just desire to forgive us, but to renew us and set us on a different trajectory. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word in a sentence like this. Lord, I pray that we would correctly see ourselves before you, like Nicodemus Nicodemus is, full of pretense, full of our own traditions. And Lord, I pray that you would so lovingly and kindly skip all of the platitudes and go directly to the heart of the situation in our life. That you would speak truthfully and fairly to us about the brokenness that is there. You don't want to play the game that we play, Lord. Because the game we're playing is avoiding reality. That you are the king of the universe. That you are God Almighty. That you are calling us to be sons and daughters, not by our performance, but by your performance. And Lord, I pray we would trust in that and we wouldn't try to be better, but we'd go deeper with you. That reading our Bibles wouldn't be about checking a list, but it'd be about hearing the Creator speak the truth of existence to us. What a privilege that is. That prayer wouldn't be about something that we have to do, but it's an opportunity to speak to God our Father. That we would enjoy you and not try to perform for you and that we'd follow your word wherever it leads us. Wherever the wind of the spirit pushes us, we would go. We love you, Jesus, we praise you, amen.